0: I had an English teacher at school who used to get the class to do this thing called the word association game. It was a bit crazy of her because we used to put it to bad use and cause all sorts of mischief and she persisted in it despite that. But this word association game she used to get us to do was she'd give a starting word and then the first person in the class would have to say whatever word came into their mind associated with it. And then the next person, whatever word came into their mind associated with that, and you can easily see how a load of teenagers put this to bad use. We could really rig that one for bad use. Uh, But there we go. I hope you get what the word association game is. Maybe you've done it yourself before. Just a word is said, and then what comes into your mind associated with that word? Now, where is this going? If we were doing the word association game this evening, and I start by saying law, What comes into your mind? What is the law associated with in your mind? Well, someone said grace, but someone else might say restrictions. Enforcement, police, punishment, limitation, Old Testament, nasty, difficult. The law tends to have negative associations in our minds, whether we're talking about in the world in general or often in the church also. Whether we're talking about laws from our government or laws in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy and Numbers. Do you easily identify with whoever wrote Psalm 119 who said, oh how I love your law. Well my aim this evening is that we should. That we should be like that psalmist. Oh how I love your law. My aim this evening is simply to persuade you the law is good which is, that's a quote from Romans 7. And I want to do that using Exodus 19. So would you come with me to Exodus chapter 19, please. Exodus 19, verses 4 to 6. Uh, I suppose it would help us to read them again. Exodus 19, verses 4 to 6. This is God speaking. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Here we have what happened at Mount Sinai before God gave the Ten Commandments. It's all leading up to the Ten Commandments. And I'm not intending to preach through these verses in detail what the verses mean and go through phrase by phrase. I'm not claiming I'm going to explain it all. Instead, I'm using them to introduce God's law, to introduce the Ten Commandments, I'm using them to bring together things from other parts of the Bible with my aim of persuading you the law is good. And as I said earlier, this is part of introducing the Ten Commandments. Next week, I'm hoping we'll see more what happens to this when we get into the New Testament. Now, I should at the beginning acknowledge I've been I've been helped by this book. I've not got very far into it, actually, but i found it very helpful so far. I don't know why it's All wonky, but it's Surprised by the Commandments, it's called, by Graham Bynum. And if as I get further into it, I find it continues to be good, then I'll uh, get you the details so that you can get yourself a copy. I want to bring you three things about the law from these verses 4 to 6. For those who find the notice sheet helps them to follow, I've dropped 3b, which was something like, The law gives freedom. I really like that point and I'd like to bring it, but I decided I ought to drop it. 3B. So just in case it confuses you if you're following that. Okay, three things about the law from these verses. And the first is, it's from God who rescues us. Verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. What did he do? What did they see? Well, he made the Egyptians rescue them from slavery. He brought them out of miserable captivity. And I'm not going to go through all the things they saw and the plagues and how he did it. I'm going to take it you basically know that. And if you don't, well, not to worry. Because the main point is this. It's so significant. He rescued them. And that's come first, before he gave his law. It's so significant, it's repeated at the start of the Ten Commandments, chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. It gives a really simple lesson, the law follows rescue, it doesn't earn rescue. Very simple lesson, the law follows rescue, it doesn't earn rescue. God didn't sneak in amongst the chain gangs there in Egypt as the Israelites built the storehouses of Ramesses and passed them a copy of the Ten Commandments and promise I'll be back later to rescue you if you've done a good job of keeping these commandments. It didn't happen that way. He just rescued them, undeserving, miserable, complaining them. And then he gave his law. Really simple point and probably most of you knew it already but it needs repeating because we have the continual tendency to think we must earn God's rescue. I'll be good at my Bible reading so that God gives me whatever it is you're after. We know that's not right but it is our continual tendency to return to that. I will do this so God gives me that. No, the law follows rescue. It doesn't earn it. And it's not just here in Exodus 19 and 20. Get to the New Testament and what do we find? The first Gospel, Matthew, describes the rescue that Jesus gives and then says, make disciples who obey all that I have commanded you. The first sermon preached after the resurrection, in other words, Pentecost, describes what Jesus did to rescue and urges people to take hold of that and then we find that they became devoted disciples, devoted to their Saviour. The first letter written in the New Testament, well, the first in the order we've got them, in other words, Romans, describes how God justifies the wicked and He freely gives what we haven't earned. And then it says, in view of God's mercies, obey the Ten Commandments. Did you know that? Okay, that's not an exact quote of Romans. But it does say, in view of God's mercies, live this way. And by the way, Romans 13, the practicalities about how to live are largely based on the Ten Commandments and follow a pattern of the Ten Commandments. That's interesting. In the New Testament. But there you see the pattern. Rescue first, and then living according to the law later. The law follows rescue. To try to do it the other way round, well, there's so many problems, follow that. One of them is, it's impossible. It's impossible to live according to the law before the rescue. A caterpillar climbs up a branch of a tree, out to the furthest leaf, launches itself off, waggles its legs hard, trying to fly, splat. Because, of course, first, it's got to become a butterfly before it can fly. And first, God must rescue us from slavery to sin before we can live a life characterised by obedience. Notice I didn't say the unbeliever can't stop murdering, can't do anything right, but... First, God has got to rescue us from slavery to sin before we can live a life characterised by obedience to, to try to do it the other way round it's impossible but it's also presumptuous it's presumptuous a woman's at home on a Friday evening at about 5.30 when someone walks in through the front door it's a man that she's never seen before and then he walks and he gives her a kiss on the cheek and he hands her a bunch of flowers and he sits down on the sofa and says, how's your day been? She says, what's going on? Who are you? What are you doing? He says, I'm being your husband. Isn't this the sort of thing that husbands do? That's a good question, new husbands. Is it the sort of thing you do? She says, What do you mean? What's going on here? I'm not married to you. And you might say, that's a crazy. Where, where do you dream up these illustrations from? How crazy is that? But it shows thinking you can live like a Christian before God has rescued you means you don't believe it's a relationship with the real living God. Because you can't just decide I'm in a relationship with the real living God and I'm going to live like that. Just like that man can't decide I'm married to that woman, I'm going to live as if I'm her husband. You can't do it. First you need God to bring you into relationship. Any attempt to live like a Christian without God first rescuing you shows you don't think he's a real person and Christianity is being in relationship with him. If anyone here is not in that relationship with him, the good news is he offers that to you. He says, put your trust in my son. Turn to him and I'll bring you into this relationship. Now, remember my aim in all this is to persuade you the law is good. I'm trying to persuade you that by showing you it's from the God who rescues us first. He brings us into relationship with him first. And that tells us the law is good because it comes from the God who is into giving, not getting. He's into giving, not getting. If God was into getting things out of us, what would he do? Well, I reckon he'd recruit the powerful Egyptians to come and do something for him. But God's into giving, so instead he rescued the weak, captive, pretty miserable Israelites. So he could do something for them. And in giving his law, he's not saying, right, I'm going to get something out of you now. He's giving something to them now. You can see this even more if you look at the restatement of the law in Deuteronomy. Did you know Deuteronomy means basically second law? And it's a restating of the law. And when it's restated, it says this. I'm quoting here from Deuteronomy 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples but it was because the Lord loved you. He wasn't trying to get something out of you. No, he's a God who gives. And that's seen in him choosing the weakest, the most pathetic. And he's still the same today. I wonder if you can think of a New Testament equivalent to God saying to the Israelites, I chose you just because I loved you. Not that there was anything worthwhile in you. I'm thinking of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, amazing words. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong, and on it goes. Because he's not into getting, he's into giving. Yes, I know the Christian life is about glorifying him, but he's, he's primarily glorified by what he gives to us. Not as if we give to him. And all this means the law is good, because it says the law giver is so good. He's not aiming to get something from us. He's aiming to give us what's good for us. And that includes these ten commandments. He's giving us something that's for our good. Something to make life go better. Well, that was the first thing I wanted to show you about the law. It's good because it's from God who rescues us first. Here's the second thing to show you it's good. It's good because it's from God who wants us close to him. What's the lawgiver like? He's the God who wants us close to him. Verse 4 again. I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Did you hear that? I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Lovely phrase. Fans of the Hobbit might think of giant eagles carrying people across wherever they're going, on the back of a giant eagle. But the picture here is of, of a great bird bringing its young home to its nest. That's what it's about. A great bird bringing its young home to its nest. That's the point of the rescue. God wanted the Israelites close to him. And like a bird with its young, he's bringing them into relationship with him. He's bringing them close. He wants them in his family. We could say he's bringing them into his nest. The law comes from the God who wants us in relationship with him, close to him. Now, here's something that people sometimes say. Christianity is about relationship, not rules. What do you think of that one? Christianity is about relationship, not rules. I think it's understandable, but misguided, because it's it's dividing two things that aren't supposed to be divided, and they don't need to be divided. It's a false distinction. Imagine this. A couple adopt children. They take a 10 and a 12 year old into their home. And they love them as their own children. They're part of the family. And, and they set rules for them. You're allowed to have 30 minutes of screen time each day maximum, not more. And uh, you don't wear your shoes in the house. Hopefully they say them nicer than this. And you leave them by the door. And after a meal, it, it's really good to tidy the table before you go off and do your own thing. And never lie. Just, our family is not going to work if, if, if there are lies happening. Never lie. They've got rules, probably more than that. They might not call them rules, but they are basically rules. Does that mean there's no relationship? Does that mean there's no love? Does that mean it's not really a family, it's just a school or a business? No. But rules can help the relationship to work day by day. They don't cause the relationship, but they can help it to work. And God brought the Israelites into relationship with him. Rules didn't cause the relationship, no, his love caused it. But he gave them rules so the relationship could work well. And the Lord Jesus did the same, if you think about it. You could get this from various places in the New Testament. Uh, John chapter 15, for example, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends... You are my friends if, do you know what he says? If you do what I command. Not suggest, not just follow my principles that I'm going to set out in a general way. Do what I command. Wow. It doesn't mean obeying makes us his friend. How we made his friend, he laid down his life for us. Freely. Not deserved. We don't earn his love. He brings us into relationship. He calls us friends. And then he says, the relationship's going to work only if you do what I command. Because you don't really trust me if you don't do what I command, do you? Now, this is all telling us, uh, what I'm trying to persuade you of is, this all means the law comes from a loving God. He wants us close to him. Like an eagle with its, with its chicks, if they're called eaglets, with its eaglets, as it brings them to its nest. It all comes from a loving God. And because it comes from a loving God, the law is about love. It's about love. Now, that's straightforward. That's obvious to us, isn't it? But it's worth remembering as we try to work out, do we value God's law? Because just about everyone thinks love is a good thing. I'm not aware of having met anyone yet who thinks that love is a bad thing. Just about everyone thinks it's a good thing. I remember reading in the news about an Englishman who, I hope I'm going to get these details right, he spent time in the Philippines but he was back in England and if he went back to the Philippines he was going to get in trouble with the law, possibly put in prison. Do you know why? He'd taken another man's wife. He'd got together with another man's wife. And they committed adultery. And the wife had left the husband. And I don't know the law in the Philippines, but according to the newspaper article I read, he'd be in trouble if he went back there. And he was totally bemused. How can I be in trouble with the law and possibly in prison just for loving someone? We love each other. We've fallen in love. We love each other. How can there be a law against that? How can I be in trouble for that? You see, everyone thinks love is a good thing. How can you be in trouble for love? But without God's law, we don't know what love is like in practice. We don't know the practical details. Without God's law, we decide love by our feelings, like that man did. But our feelings have got twisted by sin. And we'll call just what we desire, love. Our feelings are not a reliable guide. The Ten Commandments are God's reliable guide to what it means to love God and to love our neighbour. I'm hoping, Eula, that we might get a diagram go up on the screen that might help us with this. You see, the summary of the Ten Commandments is to love God. They're all about love. And as you probably know, Jesus said they're summarised by to love God And to love your neighbour as yourself. And so we've got there. It's all about love. It's summarised by loving God and loving your neighbour. But what does loving God look like? Well we have, uh, well this has put the first four commandments about loving God. I think you could argue for the first five are about loving God. And the next five are about loving your neighbour. Or maybe number five overlaps and straddles the two. But whichever, they're all about loving God and loving your neighbour. What does it look like in practice? And those laws, the Ten Commandments, tell us principles that apply everywhere, in all situations. But then you've got an awful lot of other laws, haven't you, in Exodus through to Deuteronomy? Because there are a lot of different situations where we want to know, how does it work out in this situation and that situation? Let's take, for example, the one we did in Home Group last Thursday, the Sixth Commandment. There's the principle that always applies. You shall not murder. But what about this situation? Uh, Health and safety law. Has that got anything to do with the Sixth Commandment? Uh, What about if my building might endanger someone else's life? How does that relate to it? What What about the Dangerous Bulls Act? Or in our society, the Dangerous Dogs Act? If your dog or your bull... Endanger someone's life. What about driving recklessly? What about if someone breaks into my house at night time and in the struggle to get rid of them or protect my family, they fall down the stairs and break their neck? You see, we've got a general law. You shall not murder. Then we have these situational laws. How do they apply in different situations? But in amongst the details, we shouldn't forget it's all about love. What does that love look like? in practice the law is very practical about love thanks we can get rid of the um, diagram or to put it in new testament terms we've been going through 1 john and 1 john says we love because he first loved us exodus 19 and 20 say god first loved you and he rescued you and so here's his guide how you should now love, and what that love should be like in practical detail. The law is good. It's from the God who rescues us. Of course he wants what's good for us. The law is good because it's from the God who wants us close to us, and it's about love because he's a loving God. And then lastly, the law is good because it's from God who enters into covenant with us. Let's move on to verse 5 and 6. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This law comes from a God who enters into covenant with people. Now I expect all of us have been present at a covenant being made. I expect we've all heard a bride and a groom making commitments to each other. And saying things like, I take you to be my lawful wedded wife, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others until death us do part, and so on. What are they doing? They're making a marriage covenant. Now, it's all about love. It's about relationship. It's not a contract where one person earns certain things out of the other. No, that's not what's going on. But it, it does have obligations, It is supposed to be kept. And that's what's going on at Mount Sinai. Israel wasn't earning God's care, but God was making this covenant commitment. I will be your God and you will be my people. And that's because I've loved you and I've rescued you. It's not because you've earned it. But if you're my people, there are obligations. There is a way you should behave. Now when you read in verse 5, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, you must remember the law they were about to receive did have a lot about sacrifices. It did show how to be forgiven for sin. It wasn't expecting perfect people, it was making provision for imperfect people. But it expected them to be listening to God's word, seeking to follow him repenting when they'd failed. Now I think that all that means, although the new covenant Jesus gave is so much better, and I hope next time we'll see there are differences, and there are things we've got to be very careful about how we interpret the Old Testament law. Jesus has given a much better new covenant. It isn't completely different. There are similarities, It's still about being made God's people. It's still about rescue. It's still based on grace. And it still has obligations given by God. I hope that's pretty obvious to us. It has obligations given by God. I hope it's fairly obvious to us that what we read in the New Testament is not a completely different animal from what's going on in the Old. For example, let's turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter. And read some verses there and see if they ring a bell to you. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Does it ring a bell? Is it Exodus 19 again? It's taking the words of Exodus 19 that were about a nation in the desert and it's applying them to the people of God living in what we now call Turkey, the Christians. They are the holy nation. They are God's people. They are the ones who were slaves, but now are freed and made God's people. And because God has rescued us, not from Egypt, but from sin, we must do, well, 1 Peter tells us all sorts of things we must do, but let's look back at chapter 1, verse 15. Chapter 1, verse 15. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. I wonder, Have you got a Bible with a footnote on it? Or references? And you might see, that is a quote from quite a few places in the law. The Old Testament law, interestingly. The Israelites were to be holy. Because God who called them was holy. And he brought them into covenant with him. And it's just the same for us. No, not exactly the same. We have something much better. But there are very big similarities. We're in a covenant and it does place obligations on us. Let's get back to Exodus chapter 19. What is one of the results of being in a covenant with God? It's not a business contract. You do your bit and I'll do my bit and we've got a contract that works out nicely for us. No, it's a relationship. And the relationship is like this. You will be my treasured possession. Do you see that in verse 5? I'm bringing you into covenant so you will be my treasured possession. Those God rescues are his treasured possession. Do you have a treasured possession? Don't have a clue what it might be. A painting, a piece of jewellery, a phone, a, a car. Some people treasure their car. How do you tell if someone treasures his car? Well, he won't insure it third party only, will he? He'll get it fully comprehensive, fully comprehensively insured. He'll look after it. If possible, park it on the drive, not out on the road. Care for it, clean it. Polish it, and I expect he wants other people to notice it, doesn't he? he wants other people to notice it and admire, he wants it to stand out from the crowd. Well, God cares for those he rescues, God protects his treasured possession, but he also wants them noticed. He wants them to stand out from the crowd, but for the right reasons. That's why they're called a holy nation, verse 6. A stand out from the crowd nation, a distinct people, different for the right reasons, different because we love. If we didn't have the law and we just went by what we think love is, well, we we wouldn't be distinct, would we, from the world? Because if we just went by what we think love is, well, our thoughts, so much more than we realise, are, um, are shaped by society around us. And our idea of what love is, is going to end up looking pretty much like what society's idea of love is. So God has told us what real love is, so that we can be distinct from the world around us. God's law shows us love that should make us stand out as different. It's love that's coherent. It's love that makes sense. It's love that works. Unlike our society's muddled, confused and just unworkable idea of love. We're God's treasured possession. What does it mean? It means He keeps us safe. It means we're fully insured by the blood of Jesus. It means we're cleaned. And it also means we're to stand out as distinct. And God's given us a good guide for how to stand out as a holy people. Well, I hope we're going to see something of that distinctive love as we go through the Ten Commandments in a few weeks' time. Tonight has all been introductory to that. It's to try to persuade you, here's a good gift from a good God. Uh, The Psalms show us two attitudes to God's law. I wonder if you can think of two attitudes shown up in the Psalms to God's law. In Psalm 2, there are people who say, let's throw off God's chains. God's laws are like chains. What's it like to be chained up? Heavy, uncomfortable, restrictive, annoying. That's what God's law is like, they say. Let's throw it off. That's Psalm 2. And then Psalm 119 says, Oh, how I love your law, O Lord which of those attitudes to god's law describe to you